Alleluia. Christ is risen. Whatever people do out of good intentions, this is pleasing to God. When people try their best, God is satisfied. True or false? Whatever people do out of good intentions, this is pleasing to God. True or false? False. Can you, you could speak it up. That would be, that would be all right. Well, it's good to know that a deaconess student has her theology down straight. Thank you, Michelle. These statements are false. They're contrary to the gospel. As though you could do your best and God would be satisfied. This imagines that there are several ways to be saved. One, through grace, that is, God's forgiveness, and the other through works you doing your best. From the beginning of the world, people have been saved in the same way, through the gospel, the promises of God, through grace. When Jesus appears to a pair of his disciples on Easter evening, Jesus shows them that the entire Old Testament scriptures were preparation for his suffering and resurrection. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Jesus says in Luke 24, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets. It's kind of a way of saying the first part of the Old Testament and the rest of the Old Testament. That's how they would have divided up the Hebrew scriptures. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, all the Hebrew scriptures, Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Today's Old Testament reading, Jesus links directly to himself. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We heard how the rebellious Israelites repented, cried out to God, and the Lord, through Moses, gave them a sign. The very serpent that was afflicting them was put up on a pole as though it had been defeated, destroyed, dead. And they looked at it, and they believed God's promise, and they lived. And Jesus says that his cross is the same thing, only it doesn't just save you from temporal death. But whoever looks at the cross, whoever looks at Jesus crucified, has eternal life. To signs like the serpent on the pole, God attached his word and his promise. The object, the serpent on the pole, was not endowed with some kind of magic. Rather, it was a visible word. A visible word. And that's how God works with us. He gives us his word so that we can grasp it more easily. He also attaches that word to certain objects. He makes the word splash. He makes it so that you can eat the word and drink the word. And so God does these things for our benefit so that we can more easily apprehend the word. Did I hear that correctly? Well, when I am splashed, 
or when I am chewing and drinking, I am more easily able to apprehend. Yes, that word is true, and that word is for me. All our senses can apprehend his gifts. And Christians have, from the beginning, used a liturgy so that, by repetition, we learn what we need to know about Christ. Through participation, we're memorizing God's word. And thus, you know well the passage. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. You didn't sit down to memorize that passage. It just happened through repetition. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Deceive yourself? When no one else was available, I used to like to play strategy games against myself. Board games. I would set up the armies, and I would play both sides. Strangely enough, I had trouble tricking myself. My opponent always seemed to be just as smart as I was. And so it seems like it would be very difficult to deceive yourself. But the same idea appears in today's epistle reading from James. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. How do people deceive themselves? Kevin Van Hooser writes, People tell lies to themselves in order to hide from themselves the knowledge of God, and especially the knowledge of themselves as sinners before God. People tell lies to themselves in order to hide from themselves the knowledge of God. What lies are you telling yourself? I know for me, One of the terrifying things of going to individual confession is that the pastor will learn just what a wretched sinner I really am. I know intellectually I am a sinner, but I don't want to face it. And I'd prefer that other people think of myself as better than I am. People tell lies to themselves. People hide from the truth about themselves. What lies do you need to come clean about. I've found that I can couch my own sins against the Eighth Commandment. The Eighth Commandment is you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. I've found that I can couch my own sins against the Eighth Commandment as I'm expressing concern or disappointment about someone instead of what it really is, harming my neighbor's reputation. St. James sees right through this nonsense. He says, bridal your tongue. Martin Chemnitz, the great systematizer of Reformation theology, teaches that virtues flow from the commandments. A second general virtue, he says, a second general virtue under the Eighth Commandment is the careful use of the tongue, concerning which many passages in Scripture instruct us. The commonly mentioned virtues in this category are quietness, courteousness, friendliness. Whereas James tells us to bridle our tongue, the bridle being a bit in the mouth of an animal to guide it, the Psalms teach us to set a guard over our mouth, and that guard is supposed to make sure that nothing untoward comes out. And the Lord Jesus tells us that every idle word we will have to give an account for in the judgment. Think of it, every idle word. That should terrify us. How can we reconcile 
what James says, that we should be not just hearers of the word, but also doers, with teachings elsewhere in Scripture that say it is faith that saves us, not our doing. This little phrase is helpful. Faith alone saves, but faith is never alone. Faith alone saves, but faith is never alone. A person with genuine faith sees his sin, repents or turns from it, and seeks to become new and different. And that's where our prayers come in. When we hear that every idle word we will have to give an account for, that should move us to prayer. When we hear that the words that we have couched as concern are really just harming our neighbor's reputation, that should move us to prayer. When we discover the depth of our sin, it should move us to prayer. Today is called rogate, a Latin term that means ask, and that's what we're doing in our prayers. We're asking God for things. Prayer seems easily, easy, prayer seems easy, but it actually is quite difficult. The difficulty comes in believing that God hears and will, in fact, answer. You learned from the Catechism that Amen means, yes, yes, it shall be so. How difficult is it to say your prayer and then believe, yes, it shall be so. God hears and God will answer. It's difficult because our heart imagines that prayer depends upon us. There must be something in my praying my words, my sincerity and devotion that will make the prayer effective. But Jesus in God's, but Jesus in the gospel points us in a different direction. He says, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Well, what does it mean to ask in the name of Jesus? It means, first of all, that I'm not praying in my name. I'm not the one praying, not alone. In other words, I'm not coming before the Father with my works, my devotions, my bargain, or even my own vocabulary, as though if I could just craft the words in the right way, then I can get God to give me what I want. No, we pray in the name of Jesus, meaning we pray our Father, where the Father is first of all the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the first prayer of the prayer. The Our Father doesn't, first of all, mean you and me, but it means Jesus and us. He is the one who can call upon God as Father, not us, but he makes us his little brothers and sisters. He makes himself our big brother, and he says, I will go to the Father, and you can come along with me. I have access to the Father because I am righteous. You who are not righteous, you can come with me. I share with you my righteousness. And so I only get to call God Father because Jesus has made himself my brother. Only Jesus is righteous. Only Jesus has paid for my sins. Only Jesus has rightly fasted, purely suffered, conquered temptation, defeated the devil. I didn't do these things, so my praying by myself won't be worth much of anything. But this Jesus, his asking, his praying is heard by the Father. Praying in the name of Jesus is my access and your access to the Father. 
And that also means I'm going to ask Jesus for the things that he would have me ask for. Not what's going to glorify me, but what's going to make me a better Christian. Should I pray for an expensive sports car or for help with my greed? Should I pray for the downfall of my enemies or for help in loving them, as Jesus taught us? You see, praying in the name of Jesus involves asking for what he taught us is important. Jesus models for us right prayer in what's called the high priestly prayer, the prayer at the conclusion of the section in John we've been in the last few weeks. We've been in what's called the upper room discourse, John 13, and it culminates in chapter 17 with the high priestly prayer. And there you will remember that Jesus is begging the Father that there would be some other way than going to the cross. But, he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is pure, complete, total, radical submission to the Father. And that's what our prayers are leading us towards. As we ask for various things in our life, things that are good to ask for, praying for the protection and blessing of your family, your neighbors, your church, people you love who are sick, and praying for victory over temptation, praying for a blessed death, praying for the strength to lead a life of good works. In all of these things, we come to confront the things that we are worried about, that we are anxious about, that trouble us, sins that we're confessing and that we're worried we'll commit again. In all of this, we're submitting ourselves to the Father's will and saying, I can't do anything, but you, you can do all things. Help me. Have mercy upon me. Not my will, but yours be done. And so we believe, we say amen, yes, it shall be so, confident that God is doing for us what is good, even if we have a hard time seeing that at the moment. Dear saints, we're not promised a wonderfully luxurious or prosperous time on this earth. Praying for that denies the fallen condition of the world. We aren't looking for a little remodeling, as though some granite countertops and a little paint can spruce everything up and make it good again. We dwell in a house of death. A pandemic has been upon the world since our first parents ate fruit forbidden. Our prayer is for rescue, ransom, redemption, resurrection. And that comes through Jesus, and it will come to pass. Yes, yes, it shall be so. These things I have spoken to you, Jesus says, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In the name of Jesus, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.